Welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. I'm Josephine Burton. And I'm Rachel Head. I wasn't expecting you to come to me. That's so funny. So I was totally putting you on the spot. Um, so um, we're back with the second episode from our Great Middle March Mystery podcast series. And um, we're a little bit in. I'm, I'm, I guess, three weeks into the rehearsal process. It's kind of terrifying. I've only nominally got one week left, which is scary because we've still got lots of work to do. Um, but I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Thank you. And yes, I know it's sort of sacrilege for me to ask you to take some time out when we're uh, deep into rehearsals to come and talk to me. But it's rehearsals that I want to talk about today. And and because, you know, we talk quite a lot about the show and what's coming out of the room. One of the themes that you mentioned was being heavily discussed in the room. Uh, one of the pivotal themes of George Eliot's Middle March is the fear of change and the the social politics of the of the small town and um, and how people react to that. How are rehearsals going? That's a big question. And then how have you broken down that such huge theme into our adaptation? In some ways, the first question is slightly easier. How are rehearsals <laughs> going? They're, they're going pretty well. <laughs> they're going pretty well. We, we are... Um, it's an amazingly kind of joyous and joyful challenge for both simultaneously be really getting deep into the world of George Eliot, the world she was trying to create, bringing to life so much of her amazing language and exploring the relationships um, between the characters through the words that she gave us and the words that, that Ruth and I have adapted to kind of to, to kind of mould her extraordinary epic novel into a, into a drama. And I've absolutely loved spending getting quite deep into the dynamics of the relationship evolving between you know Dr Lydgate and Rosamond and Will Ladder Slav and, and Dr Lidgate and Mrs Dollop and how she feels about that. So that's been kind of completely joyous and a wonderful part of the process. And while we're doing that and getting stuck into the words and the script, we're also trying to understand continually how can we make this experience feel present and enticing and participative for our audiences. So we're, we're sort of, it's a constant juggle between the world we're building and how we bring that to life with the audiences and with our amazing Middlemarch participants who are in and out of our rehearsal room. So play and working with them and de- developing relationships between some of the participants and the, some of the actors is just joyous to see. So it's a brilliant tapestry of a rehearsal room, which I know you've been instrumental in helping us to build. So thank you to you. Gosh, my pleasure. And it's been a, a really interesting thing to schedule because you're, you're sort of creating that community feel within the rehearsal room with the actors and the participants and the, and the way that it's like almost a sort of like open space that's that's the aim and and I, well I think I hope we're all enjoying it I certainly well, everyone's enjoying it <laughs> good good at just checking so in answer to your other question I mean the middle march is really about that middle march depicts a, a town on the cusp of change and that was um George Eliot telling that story of Victorian early you know kind of uh, Victorian England emerging around and all of the industrialization that happened and all of the changing of industry the changing of health of so much change that she was depicting and she told this extraordinary story of the ways that community kind of handled that change and and I re- was wanted it to be at the heart of the, the world that we were building in 1982, which was also, I, I know we talked about this in a previous episode, you know, as a country, the UK was struggling and dealing with massive change in the early 80s with changing in industry and the landscape. And of course, as we've got more stuck into learning about 1982, you know, things like, you know, the AIDS crisis and its impact on and the fear around 
kind of strange diseases. I'm obviously we are dealing with fear around strange diseases because of COVID, and but but in 1982 it was AIDS, it was HIV AIDS, and and its impact on our society. And there was also interestingly the other thing that was going on that we've discovered through the process was Greenham Common, um, and the kind of fight against nuclear, you know, the fight for nuclear disarmament and how it was led by the women. And and we've been exploring fear of change amongst some of them. The communities around that, like a, a bunch of our brilliant actors in the room, were in, were, remember were part of the Greenham Common or went to visit Greenham Common, and they've talked a lot about what was going on with some of their female friends who had, you know, who were seen to have inverted commering this, uh, abandoned their families and their responsibilities in order to go off and camp outside Greenham Common. So there was a lot of change going on in that world, and we wanted to bring that into the room. Thank you, Josephine. And some of the actors do mention the research they've done in the interviews I did with them earlier this week. I spoke to some of the actors who play big personalities in Middlemarch and who advocate both for and against change. Tom Gordon plays the principal Dr Lydgate, Amanda Hurwitz plays fiery landlady Mrs Dollop, and Ryan Van Champion plays a measured newspaper editor in Will Ladislav. I talked to them all about their characters' feelings towards big changes, as well as the other Middlemarchers, and was able to capture a sneak peek of rehearsals too. Uh, so uh, my name is Tom Gordon and I am playing Dr. Tertius Lydgate. Um, he is very much an outsider. He, um, he came from Paris um, and he left under some slightly unusual circumstances, uh, but I won't say too much about that. Uh, you'll have to come and see the show to find out more. Um, but he arrives in, in middle March and he's greeted with sort of quite a lot of resistance early on. He's got a champion in the form of uh, Mr. Volstrot. Uh, Mr. Volstrot basically provides him with financial support to set up a new hospital. He then has a whole range of new practices and new methods, which are really, really kind of against what the um, what the town wants and, and feels like it needs. So he's met with huge, huge amounts of resistance to any kind of change that he's trying to implement. What is he trying to achieve. So what are the changes that he's trying to implement? Well, he's a viral immunologist, which means that he studies viruses and how viruses have an effect on the body. Um, now, a bit of disclosure here. My dad's actually an epidemiologist. Um, so I've got a little bit of a background here, but you know, let's be very clear that it was my dad who trained for seven years and then had a career as a doctor and not me. So anything that I'm about to say is very much uh, as Tom, the actor, having tried to learn as much as he can about uh, viral immunology uh, as opposed to you know, having actually got a medical degree. So the, the interesting thing about Tertius Lydgate is that he has these really quite radical ideas, um, or at the time they were really quite radical, which was... He didn't believe in just giving out prescriptions willy-nilly to whoever it was that uh, was sick, which was how doctors, um, certainly in the 1800s, were making their money. Um, They would basically write a prescription out, and the cost of that prescription would actually be their fee. Obviously, during the the sort of the, uh, the 1980s, when we're set, we've got a slightly kind of parallel world going on, which is that the NHS, as we know it, doesn't quite exist in Middlemarch, um, but we uh, we certainly have uh, other forms of, um, of sort of like medical practices, um, and I guess it's it's easier to sort of think about Middlemarch's uh, sort of medical um, sort of makeup as being more like the 1800s than more than the 1980s. 
Um, but obviously, there are some great parallels to be drawn between privatisation and the NHS in our middle march, which I think is why it's so useful that the NHS doesn't exist in, in, um, in our middle march. So he's received with huge ambivalence because he comes in and he says, look, sometimes you just need to rest and you need to um, have some exercise and you need to eat your greens. And that's enough to cure you of whatever it is that is wrong with you. Uh, as opposed to being invasive with surgical procedures or being over-prescriptive with um, you know, medication uh, and making money in probably a quite, um, I suppose, disingenuous way. Um, he's all about principle. George Eliot sets ours in the 1800s. We've set ours in the 1980s. Um, and can I ask, I actually don't know why the decision to, to keep the NHS out of it was. Is that something you guys spoke about in the rehearsal room? Is it just because... Otherwise, everybody would be getting the healthcare that they got in the 80s. Yes, exactly. Um, I think the decision was made to remove the NHS uh, from our middle march um, because it didn't quite make sense of the world. And, you know, we're not slavish to the 1980s in our middle march. For example, a lot of the dialogue that is sort of spoken between the characters, it's still very much George Eliot's writing. Within that, Obviously, it just didn't quite make sense to have the NHS um, as it existed then. Um, so it was a very conscious decision uh, to move away from that and to allow the story of George Eliot's Middle March to, uh, to take precedence over historical accuracy of the 1980s. Has any of the research that you've done been sort of situated, situated with Gateway or your, your research in the, like, the AIDS crisis of the 80s? Like, is that something that's come up for you guys at all? Absolutely. I mean, the AIDS crisis uh, was was just beginning, really. Uh, so really, the epidemic, uh, uh, sort of the pandemic, if you will, started in the 1980s and started in New York. And it was horrendously, it was called the gay virus, the gay plague, because it was believed that only homosexual men um, could catch this, uh, this disease, uh, which, of course, was completely untrue. But uh, that was the current thinking at the time. And in fact, it, it was really in 1981 when the first sort of signs of uh, AIDS were, uh, were sort of detected in, um, in New York. Um, and then in 1982, uh, Terence Higgins, I think it was the 4th of July, uh, he, he died and he was the first confirmed patient um, to die from AIDS. Um, but they didn't really know what it was at the time. And it wasn't actually until 1984 uh, so after our time period of middle March, which is 1982 to 1983, um, that uh, it, HIV was actually given the name HIV because up to that point, people didn't really understand what it was. It was terrifying. There was this huge problem, this huge uh, sort of pandemic that was literally uh, it was in it was in New York, it was in England, and it was also then like spreading through Europe, and people just didn't understand what it was. Uh, they didn't know why people were dying. They just knew that they were. Um, which I think is, you know, absolutely one of the most terrifying things you could probably have. And so the characters of our middle march were, and set in the early 80s, would they have been aware of this disease sweeping the world and the people dying of it? It's entirely possible that there would be people talking about this virus, uh, this disease, and not really knowing what it was, not really kind of, as I say, at that point, it was still being called, in 1982, it was still being called uh, the gay plague. Uh, and it was, I think it was called GRID. Uh, you have to look up exactly what that acronym means. But it was only in 1983 that it was uh, was called AIDS. The medical community didn't know 
what it was. They just knew that it was this really kind of very, very problematic uh, sort of disease. So you spoke a little bit about the reaction that, that Lydgate gets when he comes into the town. Who would you say are his sort of biggest adversaries? Um, so I think that the person who clearly is the biggest adversary for Dr. Lydgate is Mrs. Dollop. Now, Mrs. Dollop runs the Green Dragon. She is the, uh, the sort of the landlord, the publican. Um, and she's been there for, for donkey's years. And she has her own um, thing, which is called the Benefit Reform Club. And Mrs. Dollop is incredibly antagonistic towards Dr. Lydgate uh, because he is uh, an advocate of change. And I think Mrs. Dollop is sort of like the standard bearer for um, keeping things as they are. Well, Mrs. Dollop uh, is what in Northern Ireland we would call a blow-in. She wasn't actually born there at all. We reckon she probably came there about 40 years ago um, from Northern Ireland. So really before things uh, got very bad in Belfast. So Mrs. Dollop, she's the, the landlady of the Green Dragon, would you say? Oh, yes. Absolutely. And she's worked her way up there. I don't think she ever thought she'd be this successful. I I imagine she started as a barmaid. (laughs) I imagine she was quite the barmaid as well. She's a fierce... I would say so. I would say she certainly was um, the Bet Lynch of her day. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the medical system that they run, that she sort of helps run from the from the Green Dragon. The Benefit Club. Yes. Now, I thought these were sort of really quite um, ancient, not ancient, but, you know, certainly uh, not within the 20th century did Benefit Clubs exist. But that's not so. I was talking um, to one of our middle people, yesterday and apparently there there were during this time what could be said to be benefit clubs uh, in Coventry and I'm sure in other towns and cities around the country the idea of it is it's a bit like a cooperative I suppose that everyone pays in a very small amount every month and we're talking about I think two or three pounds uh, back in the 80s was what they were sort of paying in mm. per month. And that was put into a fund. Now, in in middle in the middle march that we're talking about, it's actually for medical treatment. In the 80s in Coventry, they these were set up to help out with the costs that the NHS doesn't cover, like glasses, spectacles, and dental treatment, um, because these are no, they're not free, even on the NHS now. Mm. And so it would, it would be a way of making up that shortfall. Mrs. Dollop is very, very concerned with, she always refers to people like us, people who don't have a lot, people who aren't very well off. And that's the point of the Benefit Club, is to try and even things up a bit. I didn't realise that they were still really sort of happening in the 80s, actually, because I know that obviously, you know, in our middle march, there isn't an NHS, but but it did exist. Yes, it surprised me, but I think it would be a very good idea 
to, uh, I'm sure there are little pockets of them happening. They're a local thing. But I think some organizing within communities could set these up again. I really do. Unfortunately, or maybe it's not unfortunately, because it does bring a community closer together. And I think that's also what Mrs. Dollop is concerned with keeping her Green Dragon Benefit Club as part of the community. She's very uh, anti-Lydgate. She's very mm. anti the sort of new medical science that he's bringing to the town. I don't think he recognises the best way to go about things. He really doesn't understand other people's feelings. So when he does come into the Green Dragon, he talks in a way that is just completely out of kilter with what those people need to hear if they are going to be persuaded. Is the massive change that he's proposing that, that you don't need drugs for everything, basically? Or is there slightly more to it than that? I know there's a scene where Mrs. Dollop is accusing you of cutting up dead bodies before they're even cold. No, that's exactly what happens. Part of Dr. Lydgate's research is that he believes that it's very important to understand exactly why it was that someone died. Um, and so he carries out a, a large number of autopsies um, on um, patients who have literally just passed, potentially without their consent, um, because obviously they didn't know that, that was something that there, might happen to them after their death. And I think Dr. Lydgate's view is very much that these bodies of uh, people who are dead are fair game for research. And in fact, you know, the, the sort of the public spirit and the public good is to allow your body to be a point of research uh, for the medical community. Um, he doesn't really think of it in any other terms of like, oh, well, perhaps people might not want that to happen. People might not want to be cut open and investigated. They might want to just go into the ground as they are and, you know, have their religious beliefs honoured in the way that they, they believe that they should be. From an early age, I got a decided bent on anatomy. Now, I wanted to do it for the sake of doing it, for its own sake. There was a great man 500 years ago, and his name was Andreas Vesalius, and he ushered in an era of new anatomy, and he was a great, great anatomist. But the only way that he could study, the only way he could carry out his research was, it was to steal bodies from graveyards and places of execution. I can only hope he was not one of your great heroes, or else you'll be about in the middle of the night to dig up St. Peter's graveyard. <laughs> you know how angry people were about Mrs. Gobi. You've given your enemies enough already. Thank you, Mrs. Scott. Thank you for your time. Ooh. Sorry, man. What do you think the Mrs. Dolph's main problems are with Lydgate? Do you think it's that he's do you think he threatens a way of life for her? She thinks he's a snob. She thinks he's not as clever as he thinks he is. She keeps talking about his disrespect for the dead and the poor. And I think these are, as much as the fear of change, are what she sees when she sees Lydgate. Lydgate's a really interesting character because he comes in with this sort of like quite noble 
mission, I guess. Is it fair to say that he's a little bit patronising sometimes to some of the, the members of the town? Do you think maybe that's why he failed? Or did, did, did he fail in your opinion? Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. He is a very proud man. And for him, it's, you know, it's, it's his way or the highway. And he really doesn't want to um, allow for any debate, I guess. You know, and I think that's his big problem is that he comes in and says, well, this is the way you should do it. And then he says that, uh, well, if, if it's not my way, then it's wrong. And uh, sort of, you know, towards the end of, um, of our middle march, uh, you know, there are things that take place in the world which really kind of shine a light on how destructive that particular viewpoint can be. Um, and, I, you know, my own personal view is that you've got to be flexible. You've got to have a discussion and you've always got to be open to somebody else's point of view because otherwise you don't learn and you don't change. And I think that Lydgate, his biggest flaw is that he doesn't learn and he doesn't change and he's full of hubris and full of pride and thinks that, and he uses the word provincial quite a lot. And it's a word that George Eliot uses. I think, you know, it was even in George Eliot's um, title, uh, Middlemarch, I think it's called A Study of the Provinces. And um, this word provincial for him is really derogatory. It means that these people are beneath him and that they are academically inferior to him and that they should just listen. And as I say, that's his, his big, big kind of character flaw. Amanda, what is it that Mrs. Dollop really fears about Lydgate? We know a lot about why she doesn't like him, but what is it about the changes that he's bringing that really gets her back up? What what is what are the changes that she's afraid of, and are they reflective of the the fears of the time? Do you think she mentions Mrs. Goby, God bless her, several times, and this is a woman who died, and Lydgate, she was hardly cold, and he was standing over her, ready to cut her up for his experiment. And I think that sort of thing, Mrs. Dollop is is scared of for the poor, because she feels they won't uh, have the influence to be able to um, look after their loved ones. She is a socialist in her way. Mm, okay. I think. Or maybe that's just how I'm playing her. She doesn't think he's better than her. Yeah. In fact, she doesn't think anybody's better than her. And in some ways, I think that's a very modern outlook, particularly for a woman. Yeah, well, a woman who's in charge of her own pub. That wasn't common, certainly not when the book was written. But in the 80s, there were, I remember them in Camden, those landladies, and they were... Fierce when they needed to be, and absolutely lovely when you were a good customer. Yeah, she's quite charming, Mrs. Dollop. She gets in there with the customers, with the people that she cares about. Maybe then, well, I'm asking the wrong questions. Do you do you think that she <laughs> have a fear of change? Do you think that she is afraid of change, or do you think what she's afraid of is people that come in and don't and don't afford? the community that she spent such a long time contributing to, the the respect she thinks they deserve. We're all afraid of change. I think by nature, human beings don't really like change. Children are much better at dealing with it than adults are, in my experience. Um, it doesn't mean they can't cope with change, but 
you know, that I think that's why very often revolutionaries in their teens uh, have become much more conservative in their later years. I have to tell you that that doesn't count for me at all. <laughs> I certainly haven't calm down with age that does not shock me amanda <laughs> <laughs> you're making me sound as if i am mrs dollop i'm really not but i suppose she has quite a lot of me in her because i'm playing her <laughs> no i i like her i genuinely like her and i think she does more good than harm she is both afraid of change and she's an agent of change, but only for the change she wants, what she sees as being fair change. And so do you think that her relationship with Ladislav is reflective of that then, the the idea of fair change? Because that's what Ladislav wants, right? Completely. And I think it's really lovely that um, certainly towards the end, um, Ladislav and Dollop really do hit it off. And again, that maternal instinct in her, they have a lot in common in the way they see the world. And again, it's about a moral compass. It really bothers them if something isn't fair. There's a sense of injustice, I think, in both of them for different reasons. And I think, I think that is something that is very much like me. I can't bear the idea of injustice. You said that like it's a bad thing, but I think that's an admirable trait. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it depends. It de you have to be very careful about not occupying the moral high ground. Well, one of the characters in Middlemarch who never tries to occupy the moral high ground is Will Ladislav. He's an outsider just like Lydgate but he's able to come in and actually affect change. I asked Josephine a little bit more about the origins of Will Ladislav's character in our adaptation compared to the book. The great, extraordinary woman who helps the community through change in George Eliot's novel is Dorothea Brooke. Dorothea Selburn, as she became after she got married. And we don't have Dorothea in our show. So when we were, we, we, when we were looking at how we would kind of tell the story of Middlemarch without Dorothea, we've given quite a lot of the extraordinary strength that she has and the power that she has to change and support the change in Middlemarch to Will Ladislav, who was her lover in, in, in the book. I hope I haven't done too much of a spoiler for those who are making their way through the book. For apologies. Um, but Will Ladislav has sort of taken that role on from her in the book. In our version of the show, she's he's he's the he's the kind of absolutely committed, loyal, fiercely determined, um, genuinely committed to change character in the book, who is aware of how difficult that is for people and how he needs to hold people's hands and and find a path towards change which is sensitive and thoughtful and takes people with them as opposed to some of the other characters in the in the show particularly Dr Lydgate who is who is absolutely committed to change absolutely committed to do it on his own terms right now without really understanding that that's not how change happens change happens by consensus Will Ladislav is um, the newbie in town. He's been brought in by Mr. Bulstrode uh, to run the Pioneer, which is a new paper which Bulstrode has set up to rival the Trumpet, which is the sort of town's current, very gossipy newspaper. Ladislav comes from 
impoverished backgrounds, essentially. He's very much lived on the breadline. Um, so I think he's looking for a way of bringing change in politics and local affairs. He's trying to influence a grand scale of change. He's trying to bring change to Westminster, not just to Middlemarch. The reader of the newspaper was seen to be a middle-class, white, straight male. It wasn't, uh, women were very much marginalised. Um, the gay community, um, the LGBT plus community, as we have it now, very much marginalised in those and and almost degraded within some some papers. And I think Ladislav is exactly the kind of person that comes in with a thought to not stick to those, to see from the other side. And actually, even in our version, uh, Hewitson, who is um, the deputy editor at The Pioneer, Hewitson is a woman as well. So he is championing all of these changes in in not just through the paper, but through his work in, in Middlemarch. He's trying to give Middlemarch a changing environment. And how would you say he's received? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the beauty of Ladislav is that he is very much an outsider. He has a completely different heritage from the average Middlemarcher, but he is unfazed by it. He's very used to it. He's a travelled, um, seasoned kind of guy. And so he's used to being the outsider. But where he differs from other outsiders is that he is genuine and he is understanding and he brings others in. He He's, he's almost like a politician. He uses his words and his rhetoric. Your sort of counterpart in our version of Middlemarch and I guess in general is Tertius Lydgate. You're brought in and, and sort of presented by Bullstrode at the same time of being like, here's what I'm bringing to the town. Here's this new blood I'm bringing in. Um, and you both sort of have mission statements. You, have, you both want to affect change and you both come up against obstacles to that. Why would you say that it is that you are successful to a degree if you do feel like you're successful in a way that Lydgate never really gets people on side well Tertius in the play Tertius Lydgate is he goes about things in a very intellectual way he's always thinking of things and of people understanding him at his word and his language and the bluntness with which he says things, I think it puts people on edge and it, it puts people's heckles up. Whereas with Ladislav, that, that use of language is more poetic. He's an artist at heart. Um, so he is an intellectual. And I think that's why they become friends. And I think that's why there's such a strong tie between the two, because they can speak on a level that maybe the rest of Middlemarch don't quite get. But the artistic side of Ladislav brings him into the people. It gives him a way of expressing himself and understanding others. He has an empathy um, that really gets that back door into, into the society there and, and how he can help them specifically and how they can all work together. They, he, he sort of wins them over, he gets them on his side which Lydgate just keeps trying to do. He keeps writing these articles which sort of almost criticise people. Whereas when Ladislav criticises people, it's in a hopeful, 
reformist way. It's how can we do this better? How can we make change in a positive way that's going to help us all? Just as a question for you as the director of the show, having done the interviews that I have, Amanda, who plays Mrs. Dollop, and and Tom, who plays Dr. Lydgate, both have very different ideas. You know, Tom thinks Lydgate went about things in the wrong way, but his heart's in the right place. But that Mrs. Dollop is an antagonist and afraid of change, afraid of anything changing in her life. And and Amanda thinks Mrs. Dollop is a community-driven fiercely loyal woman who is happy for there to be change. It just has to be the right kind of change. And Lydgate is the wrong kind of change. So it's really interesting sort of hearing them defend their characters. If you could say that you had a slightly more objective eye, what's your view? I'm not convinced actually that Mrs. Dollop believes in change. Actually, if there is change to be had, it's on her terms. Um, And I really feel very strongly that Dr. Lydgate knows and believes in change. He spends his his time working on exploring, investigating, studying it. He's absolutely passionately committed to a possibility of doing doing things differently. He just doesn't know how to take people with them on that journey. Um, And he definitely sees... Mrs. Dollop, representative of, of of the community that won't take, won't travel with him, and won't is not interested in going with him. We're exploring a, a slightly different Mrs. Dollop because you probably heard in Amanda's out, out for accent that she's not from Middle Middlemarch, and we are exploring a backstory um, of the fact that she, she comes from Northern Ireland herself and has has established herself in Middlemarch and has become a more staunch Middlemarch person, community member than probably many of those who were born there. And um, she passionately believes in the community and loves it deeply, and believes in that community that she moved to. It has been a safe house for her Middlemarch and. And that's why she doesn't want to change it. It has worked for her. Uh, and I think it's only it's only through her encounter with Will Ladislav that she sees a, com- a kind of kindred spirit in him and she understands his passion and she understands that she has this shared kind of tragic past with him and she sees how he's carefully, sensitively, thoughtfully exploring and navigating a way forward um, that can include her and wants to include her. It, it opens her eyes to something at the end that, that she would never have been ready to, to move towards earlier in the show. It's sort of interesting because it's a conversation that we've had a lot with Ruth. I've had a lot with Ruth Livesey over the years. Is that George Eliot's novels don't end, don't end with a great climax? There's no, there's never a great kind of satisfactory, like great epic end culmination of the things that end and a great finish. They end really quietly and thoughtfully, and um, it's quite it's quite hard to to kind of end a theat- theatrical experience on that same kind of quiet note. So we did need to find an ending that would be satisfactory and would do justice to George Eliot's novel at the same time as sort of letting our audience leave on a high or feel satisfied that the circles have been closed. And this is our way of sort of paying tribute to the heart of the novel while while doing something that's kind of theatrically exciting. Well, I don't think I'm going to be able to say it any better than that. So instead, I will thank all of my incredible and articulate guests this week. Josephine Burton, Tom Gordon, Amanda Hurwitz and Ryan Van Champion. All the beautiful musical interludes were taken from songs by Wes Finch, an amazing artist and composer who also happens to be the sound designer for the show. The Great Middlemarch Mystery is playing from the 7th to the 10th of April around Coventry and tickets are available from our website. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dash Arts Podcast. I'm Rachel Head and I'll leave you with a little more from Wes. This is Ring on the Riverbed. 
Now there's dark and light, you gotta love the whole Life ain't a sugar bowl, there's salt plenty And don't I know it, no, there's no use telling me Well there's a ring down on that riverbed Thrown down there by the woman I wed The woman I wed said goodbye She had enough of me and so have I Find myself on the Clifton Bridge With plenty of questions and a faded will to live I wrestled the beast and I prevailed No, I live to tell the tale Oh, I live to tell the tale 